for a much greater good. Just a few years ago in Bosnia and the Balkans, Christians and Muslims went after each other, killing indiscriminately, committing unspeakable acts of genocide, bulldozing the dead into graves, mass graves. Christians were involved in terrorism, plundering, destroying Muslim homes, raping their women, killing their children, supposedly in the name of Jesus Christ. Was this a modern social problem that just popped up all of a sudden? No, they were just picking up where their ancestors left off 500 years ago. Similar stories could be told in other places, about other places and other times. What an embarrassment to those of us who truly strive to follow the teachings of Christ and do what he says. Of course, our news media and the, the secular establishment revels in using the name Christian in reporting such atrocities. But again, again, that is what the aggressors consider themselves. They call themselves Christians. And so how could so-called Christians think such things, let alone do them? Did I miss something in my Bible? Well, yes, maybe I did. Down through the ages, terrible things have been done in the name of Jesus Christ. Things that he never commanded, but things nevertheless that built and advanced a monstrous kingdom of Christ on this earth that was full of evil and corruption of the truth. How could this happen? Why didn't our Lord foresee this would happen and warn us about it? And that's the sad part. He did. The problem is, is that his subjects were, as one Bible teacher puts it, so hypnotized by size and success of the kingdom of heaven on earth that they didn't see it coming. They were too intoxicated by the millions of people acknowledging the lordship of Jesus Christ and asking the question, how could God not be pleased? People are coming to Jesus. They're saying yes to Jesus. We can overlook some of these other things. Jesus warned about this, friends. If you have your Bible or would like to use the note sheet, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 13 as we continue our study of the parables of Matthew 13. There are seven, eight parables altogether. We'll be looking at two today, two next week, and then two the following week. It says here, another parable he put forth to them. This is verse 31, I'm sorry. Verse 31 of Matthew 13. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Another parable he spoke to them, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables. And without a parable, he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Now, some of you are probably wondering what these parables have to do with the crusades of the 11th century, with the atrocities committed in Bosnia in the 1990s, and of course we could add a slew of other things from the record of history of Christianity throughout the world, not the least of which would be the conversion of the Roman Empire, the rise of the papacy, the division between East and West the Eastern Orthodox 
movement, the Dark Ages, the Inquisition, the Crusades, the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation, the rise and fall of the state church, the colonization of pagan peoples for economic gain. Now, in contrast to this well-known record that you will find in any book speaking or writing about Western, the history of Western civilization, which involves the abuse of power, the domination of people, and the display of great evil by those who claim to be Christian, there is another record, fully known only by God, and involving the immeasurable personal sacrifice, even persecution and martyrdom of many devoted servants of our Lord Jesus Christ over the last 2,000 years, who have held up the truth of his word in a Christian world that was increasingly hostile to the truth, who took the gospel to peoples living in great spiritual darkness in uncivilized parts of the world, and who truly did the will of God the will of our Lord Jesus Christ in the day in which they lived. We don't read much about them. There's not much written. In fact, the vast majority of them, we couldn't find a record on earth about their lives. But we will hear about them someday when the Lord Jesus Christ introduces them to us. And we will see that throughout the history of Christendom, they were there serving their Lord faithfully. So how can we explain such contrasting historical records among those who claim to serve the Lord Jesus Christ? Two parables. The parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven cast much light upon what has been happening in the kingdom of heaven on earth over the past 2,000 years. Now I want to give you some background. And I'm going to try and condense this down a little bit because I know that's probably getting hard to sit through week after week. But you know, if anybody comes in here and hasn't been here for the last three weeks, they're going to be somewhat lost. And even if you've been here, the review sort of helps get you back into the train of thought. So I'll try to be as succinct as I can be. In the parables of Matthew 13, Jesus has been making known what he calls the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Now, we're not going to go back and review them extensively, as I said. But if you're interested, I would suggest that you maybe pick up a tape of the messages over the past three weeks. The main point of these parables, however, is that in these parables, Jesus, the Messiah King, is explaining what is going to happen to the kingdom of heaven between the time of his rejection at the first coming, at his first coming, and the time of his reception at the second coming. I'll put the familiar chart up there. You've got it already. The whole point here is that the kingdom of heaven is not a mystery. Messiah's kingdom was predicted way back in the Old Testament. So that was not something that was a mystery. He came declaring that he was the king and that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. The kingdom of God was at hand. And they were to repent and to prepare themselves to enter that kingdom by believing in him. But they rejected him. They said, no, we don't want you to rule over us. And in chapter 12, that came of Matthew, that came to a climax when the Pharisees declared that the miracle he was doing was done by Satan. Clearly the handwriting was on the wall. Jesus' days on this earth, barring his willingness to stand and fight, which he was unwilling to do because he was going to be the Lamb of God that would be sacrificed for the sins of the world. His days on that earth, on this earth, were numbered. And the question then comes by his followers to be, well, Lord, what's going to happen to the kingdom now? Are we going to have to wait until you return? Is there any, any sense in which the kingdom would continue in your absence? Jesus would be rejected, he would be crucified, he would be raised, and then he would be ascended into heaven, enthroned as king. If you read Hebrews 2 carefully, or Hebrew 1, Hebrews 1 carefully, and Psalm 110. And establish his earthly messianic kingdom over this earth, this whole earth, 
In other words, would the kingdom of heaven simply be put on hold until Messiah King returned from heaven? Or would it exist on this earth in some unique, mysterious way? Remember what is needed for a kingdom to exist. You need a king and you need subjects. You need a king and subjects willing to do what the king says. Now, a king might be detained in a faraway place, but his kingdom still continues because his people have declared their loyalty and allegiance to him and their willingness to do what he says, even in his absence. In this sense, Jesus explained that his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, would in a mysterious way continue to exist on this earth in his absence. There would be people who would claim to be loyal to him, who would declare their allegiance to him, who would do what he says. But they wouldn't be forced to do it because he wouldn't be here to enforce it. He will come back one day and enforce, as the Bible says, with a rule of, with a rod of iron, he will enforce his will upon the world so that the world does right what is right and just and loving. But for now, those who submit to him do it willingly. Now, many equate this mystery form of the kingdom with the church, but in reality, it's much broader than the church and would become broader than the church because it will not include just those who do the will of God, which is to believe in Jesus Christ, his son, for eternal salvation, but it will also include those who have no idea what the will of God is regarding his son, Jesus Christ, who have little or no understanding about his word, the word of Christ. They will simply declare themselves Christian. They will call themselves disciples or followers of Jesus. They will swear allegiance to the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, they will identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. If they go to the hospital and the chaplain comes and says, what is your religious affiliation? They will say, Christian. And yet they will have no idea of how to enter the kingdom of God once the Messiah returns and establishes his kingdom. But they are loyal to him today. And in their own estimation, in their own eyes, they intend to serve him according to their own standards. They may be evangelicals. They may be charismatics. They may be Mormons. They may be Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholics, liberals, neo-Orthodox. The one thing they all have in common is that they all claim allegiance and loyalty to Jesus Christ, however they understand him. Of course, this kingdom would not start off like this with all of this grouping of people that claim allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ but have no idea what he has told them to do. According to the first parable, the parable of the sower, or better, the soils, Jesus seemed to make it clear that this kingdom would start off rather unremarkably as the seed of the word of Christ would be proclaimed or spread throughout the world and on those good and receptive hearts who received it would go, those hearts would go on, those lives would go on to produce fruit of a life lived in obedience and loyal service to the King, Messiah. Many others to whom the seed fell on because their heart was overgrown with thorns or it was hardened, although they were clearly going into the Messiah's kingdom, they would not be living in this life, in complete obedience and service to the, to the king. Some people, many people, to whom the seed fell on, who, whose life was nothing more than a thoroughfare of thoughts and activities, never received the seed and were never, never became born again, as the Scriptures teaches. But there would be some who had a good and receptive heart, who would hear the word and say, I believe, and who would go on to live productive lives of a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the teaching of the first parable. Only a portion of those to whom the word of God was spread would receive it and become productive in the kingdom. 
This was the willing obedience and service to a king who was seated in heaven. A king waiting to return to this earth where he would enforce obedience. But for the meantime, these people were willingly obeying him. Jesus calls them sons of the kingdom. Not only because they share his life and have been born again, but because they also share his heart. They share his will. They share his vision, his plan, his purpose for the future. They're sons of the kingdom. And through the word of God being sown on their life and through the work of the Spirit of God in their lives, they become sown by the Savior in such a way that they will continue to teach and nurture those who would enter into that kingdom. The second parable, the parable of the tares, takes us a step further down the road to understanding the mystery form of the kingdom. In this parable, we learn about the enemy of God, Satan, who would oversow the kingdom. Go back over where the Lord Jesus Christ has sown seed on the lives of men. And he would sow, or where he's sown, the Lord Jesus Christ has sown the seed of the sons of the kingdom in his kingdom to teach and to nurture that kingdom. He would go through and he would sow sons of the devil, sons of the wicked one, who would indeed counter the work of the sons of the kingdom. In this parable, we learn that those sons would be indistinguishable to start with from the sons of the kingdom. The sons of the devil and the sons of the kingdom would look alike. Only until they get to the point where they begin to bear their fruit, their teaching, their ministry, what they're saying, would they become obvious. However, in time, these counterfeit sons would bring forth the fruit of disobedience and perversion of the truth. And all of them who have caused the world to stumble and to actually live in disobedience to the king, in the end, these tares will be destroyed as false workers, false teachers. For all the iniquity and evil, they will be destroyed by God. Now, Jesus, using these two parables, has laid down the basic premise, if you will, of what is going to happen in this mystery form of the kingdom of heaven between his two comings. But how would this all play out in time and space? Given his teaching of the first two parables, what will actually happen to the mystery form of the kingdom that would make this all come about? And that takes us to the third and fourth parables, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. And they're very short, so it won't take long to go through them today. So let's take a look at them. Verse 31 through 32, we need, this is the third parable, the parable of the mustard seed. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds, but indeed, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. The mustard seed. The mustard plant of Palestine is very different from the mustard plant that we know of in this country. To be strictly accurate, a mustard seed is not the smallest seed. If you're a botanist, the seed of the cypress tree, for instance, would be smaller. But Jesus is using the proverbial language of the, of the oriental mind, and the mustard seed was used as a proverb of smallness. Just like we say the sun rises. Well, the sun doesn't actually rise. It turns. The earth turns. But... Nevertheless, that's the way we speak proverbially. The extraordinary thing, however, about the mustard seed was that it's, it has abnormal external growth, sometimes reaching 12 to 15 feet high. Now, this is a plant. It becomes like a shrub, a bush. But instead of just being a bush that you would plant out there in your yard, it becomes one of those huge bushes, them ficus trees. That, that must be a plant. They grow like crazy and tear up all the concrete. In one season, this bush can sometimes reach a height of 12 to 15 feet. And it provides, it's like a tree, providing even a place for the birds to come and nest in its branches. So what will actually happen to the mystery form of the kingdom. What's this saying? Again, we might call the mystery form of the kingdom Christendom. 
How will the parables of the sower and the tares play out over time and space? Although Jesus did not directly interpret the parable of the mustard seed, from the pattern that we have observed up to this point, it becomes obvious what he was saying. The mustard seed represents a very small number of people who believe and who are truly devoted to following Jesus, the Messiah King, and doing what he says. And from this very small group of people whom he planted in the field, 120 in the upper room to start with on the day of Pentecost, over 500 brethren that saw the Lord Jesus Christ and undoubtedly many others in the, the area, from this small group of people that he had planted through his ministry on earth, he would bring forth people who were sons of the kingdom. However, like the abnormal growth of the mustard seed, which grows almost overnight into a giant shrub or bush, the small group of followers of Christ, which he had sown in the world, begins growing. At first, the growth was delightful. It showed great promise. But then all of a sudden, the counter-sowing kicks in that, the, that Satan does. And suddenly, almost overnight, the growth becomes abnormal. Great multitudes of professing followers of Messiah King were coming into the kingdom. People who gladly claim his name and speak of him as their king and lord. In short order, this mystery form of the kingdom of heaven had developed into a monstrosity. Furthermore, we read that the mustard plant becomes a bush so big that it attracts the birds of the air, which normally only nest in trees. What does all this suggest to us about this kingdom? Notice that this plant, mustard plant, grows beyond just being a source of food. More accurately, it becomes a large bush that now is being used as a place for the birds to nest. In the Old Testament language, we often find the kingdoms of the earth and their kings represented by trees. In Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, uh, in Daniel 4 and Assyria and Ezekiel 31 are two examples of these giant spreading trees representing giant kingdoms. But the mustard seed is not really a tree. It's a plant. And as one person commented, it was basically a garden shrub outdoing itself, becoming so large that it became a place for the birds of the air to nest. In other words, it was exceeding what it was expected for a plant that was used for food and flavoring. It had become a home for the birds of the air. Now, what does that symbolize? What is, what is Jesus driving at here? What is the figure talking about? There are two possible interpretations. First, one, the birds here represent Satan and his demonic agents. Now, they found a very congenial home in this gigantic, uncontrollable kingdom. And such an interpretation complements our Lord's reference to the birds in the first parable of the sower who were constantly looking for the seed that was on the, the soil that was the pathway so that they could quickly snatch the seed away before it would take root in that soil. And that the Lord likened to the devil, I take it his agents, who spot the seed and snatch it away from a person's heart before they're able to latch onto it and believe. So clearly it does fit the context of the parable of the sower. But there's another possible interpretation, the second one, and that is that the birds are figures from Daniel and Ezekiel representing many peoples who have now come under the influence, protection, and provision of this spreading kingdom. They live in the spreading branches but are not really part of the kingdom. Many nations and many peoples are now finding a welcome mat thrown out as far as taking advantage of the benefits of this kingdom, even though they themselves were not part of it. They had pagan ideals, pagan practices, pagan beliefs. And so they now find this a convenient place to nest. Now the point is clear. The mystery form of the kingdom of heaven, Christendom, 
will quickly become very big and very powerful and very wealthy. A well-organized system also providing safe harbor for all kinds of evil doctrines, false religions, and false teachings, false leaders, along with many perverted pagan ideas and practices. Did this ever happen in the history of the church? No student of the history of Christianity can escape the obvious here, I don't believe. Let me just share with you something. How many of you heard of Emperor Constantine? Roman Emperor. About the year A.D. 300, the Emperor, Emperor Constantine was engaged in a civil war with Maxentius. The forces of Maxentius, it appeared, were much stronger than those of Constantine. Constantine realized he needed reinforcements if he were to be victorious. There was a large, huge force, powerful force, within the Roman Empire at that time that was neither for him or against him. And that was Christianity, which had grown very strong. Constantine announced that he had a vision. He announced that he had seen a great flag unfurled across the heavens with the words emblazoned, emblazoned on, on it, in hoc signo vincis. In this sign, conquer. And in the corner there was a red cross and upon a field of blue. Constantine took this to be a sign and he announced that if he should be victorious over Maxentius, he would proclaim that Christianity was the official religion of the, Holy Roman, of the Roman Empire. And he could do that because he was not only the emperor, he was also Pontus Maximus, which meant he was the high priest of the Roman religion, of the religious practice, the false religion of Rome. After he won the battle, which he did in 312 A.D., he immediately declares the, his conversion to Christianity. He has his army baptized into Christianity. A few years later, as again the Pontifex Maximus, he led the whole Roman Empire into the visible church of the Lord Jesus Christ. How did it ever happen? How could those fervent, Bible-believing Christians who a few years earlier had friends eaten by the lions in the Roman Colosseum who were burned at the stake, crucified upside down, how could they let the church they loved and would die for be thoroughly overrun and controlled by a pagan emperor and a pagan empire full of idolatrous religious practices. They didn't respond well to the system, but they tolerated the man who was able to seduce them into the system, Constantine. I don't know of any man who has so completely swept the entire church of Jesus Christ off its feet as Constantine did in that period of time. How did he do it? Listen to this. He exempted the Christian clergy from military and municipal service. He abolished various customs and ordinances offensive to Christians. He facilitated the emancipation of Christian slaves. He legalized bequests to Catholic charities. He enjoined the civil obedience, observance of Sunday, though not as Dies Domini, that is, the day of the Lord, but as Dies Solus, the day of the sun, in conformity to his worship of Apollo. He didn't give that up. He contributed liberally to the building of churches and the support of the clergy. He erased the heathen symbols of Jupiter, Apollo, Mars, Hercules from the imperial coins and gave his sons a Christian education. Furthermore, he advanced Christians to high office. He elevated women. He encouraged family life. He made welfare welfare available to the poor and widows and orphans. He created the kind of social and economic situations which made it possible for Christians to live at ease. How would you feel toward that kind of president of the United States? And above all else, thousands were being saved. That is, they were converting 
to Christ, declaring their allegiance to Him as King of kings and Lord of lords. Never mind, they didn't have a clue about eternal life and putting their faith in Christ to save them from their sins to have eternal life. But they were loyal to Him. Long live the Lord Jesus Christ. Thousands were being saved. The example and the encouragement of the God-sent emperor, soldiers, slaves, traitors, professors, mothers, they were all rushing into the church because the emperor was in the church and he says it's good. God must really be at work. Isn't it exciting what God's doing? How can you argue with success? Christianity was sweeping the empire. And the people, what did they think of it? After their conversion, they wanted religion. All these pagan peoples coming into the church, they said, we had a religion before, we got to have a religion. So they got religion. Constantine took care of that. He turned the temples, the heathen temples, into churches. He paid for a lavish reconstruction and ornamental artwork in the churches. He changed pagan festivals into church festivals. Same festivals, but still the same. While retaining the same calendar, he transformed pagan doctrines into Christian doctrines. Gave them some new names. Same terminology of the Christians used, but different meanings so we can accommodate these people. Everybody's got such different ideas. And we need to be tolerant. We need to accommodate all that. The people were thrilled. Everybody was excited. They were so happy. The mystery form of the kingdom of heaven had become the fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen. Starting off with humble beginnings, it grew into a monstrosity. Christendom became Christian in name only. But this heartbreaking vision of the future does not end here. Jesus continues to tell us more about this mystery kingdom. He continues with another parable. Verse 33, another parable he spoke to them, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Leaven. Leaven was a little piece of dough which had been kept over from a previous baking. It was allowed just to sit. And of course things, I would say rot, but they don't say it that way. It becomes fermented. Leaven was simply a piece of fermented dough, and then it would be placed in a new batch of dough, and it would cause it to rise. Now, many Bible teachers have a huge problem with this parable because their theology says things are going to get better on earth until the church brings in the kingdom that has been promised, or at least overwhelmingly moves the world toward the Lord Jesus Christ. They object that the kingdom of heaven could be likened to leaven, if leaven represents evil. Therefore, they say, leaven cannot represent evil. Even though it does in most every place else in Scripture, here, leaven represents the Holy Spirit and the Gospel. Well, that sort of violates the context, and it violates the use of the word leaven in the Bible. Take a look at it carefully. For one, consider the context. Jesus had already taught the presence of evil in the kingdom when he told and interpreted, by the way, the parable of the wheat and the tares. He clearly introduced the principle of evil into the kingdom through the tares. And in the last parable that we will yet come to, the parable of the dragnet, he emphasizes the idea of, of the evil people in the day of the judgment of this kingdom. The good fish, the bad fish. So in the context, evil seems to be where our Lord is going. Furthermore, we need to bear in mind that leaven is almost always used as a figure of evil or wrong in both the Old and the New Testaments. For instance, in the Old Testament, leaven is used consistently to represent evil. In sacrifices which represent Jesus Christ, such as the unleavened bread on the table of showbread, no leaven was permitted. In cases where leaven was permitted, they inevitably represent human situations. In the New Testament, leaven was used by Christ of the externalism of the Pharisees, of the unbelief of the Sadducees, of the worldliness of the Herodians, and in general of evil doctrine. In Paul's letters, likewise, leaven represents evil, as in 1 Corinthians 5 and Galatians 5. 
And you can go through and just check it out on your own. You won't find that leaven is ever spoken of well in Scripture. So what does this parable of the leaven mean? What is this saying about the mystery form of the kingdom of heaven? About Christendom? Well, the meal represents a large amount of dough capable of feeding a large crowd, which is interesting. You would think that the woman would just be pairing a little bit of dough for her family. But no, she's preparing enough here for over 100 people. That's how much meal she had. And it represents that which was good, as it was made from the wheat and not the tares. In the kingdom, it refers to the sons of the kingdom, I believe. The meal. The woman, on the other hand here, represents Satan, whom Jesus referred to as the sower of the tares, because they were also evil. The leaven is the false doctrine, the false teaching, as well as the pagan ideals and practices, which in a very definite way impacted the Christians in the first century. A quick study of the New Testament quickly reveals just how much of a problem this was right at the beginning of the church. As the apostles went forth to teach and preach, they were constantly having to deal with false teaching, false religion, false prophets, pagan ideas, pagan practices. The leaven became assimilated into Christian, Christendom, I should say. So that by the second and third century, false doctrine and heathen practices were deeply embedded in most Christian beliefs and practices. Even the church fathers. You ask most Bible students today how often they consult the church fathers. Now, I have a whole, I have a, that many books at home called the, the church fathers. And you go in there and you start reading what they say about the Bible. And invariably, they read between the lines. They're all over the place. And they're closer to the situation than I am 2,000 years later. But the leaven seemed to have gotten in there and worked. I'm not saying that they weren't saved. Don't, we're not talking about saved or unsaved. They're obviously born-again people. But it was impacting them. Even the church fathers... And by the time we get to the age of Constantine, things are ready to go. The loaf is ready to rise. You know how you wait for it to rise and then it starts to smell so good? Constantine made that happen. By the time that we get to Constantine, because the leaven, Christendom, Christendom begins to rise. The mystery form of the kingdom becomes inflated, making it larger than life to people in the world. And boy, did it smell good just like a new loaf of baked bread. Christian pomp and circumstance were everywhere. But the evil of the leaven keeps on working, permeating every nook and cranny of Christendom until finally the whole kingdom is leavened. And all that remains is for the king to return and judge what has become a monstrosity and completely counterfeit. The parables of the mustard seed and the leaven are really interrelated and taken as one step further down the road to understanding not just the history of Christianity, but the times in which we live. And you may say to me, Pastor, this sounds so negative. Is there any bright spot here that I can get a handle on? Is everything gloom and doom? While Satan and the tares he has planted work to destroy the kingdom? Our Lord Jesus Christ is at work as well. And he's going to find something of two things of enormous worth out of this kingdom. It's called the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price. And those two things that he finds will delight our hearts. And we're going to hear about those next week. It's also the time when we're having the name tag Sunday and we encourage you to bring a friend. It should be a very positive emphasis. So there is something, there's a bright spot here. But let's don't lose sight of the negative. You know, I know we don't like negatives in our day, but it's a fact of life. And if we close our eyes to the negative, we end up at the same place that the Christians were when Constantine said, we're all Christian now. The bottom line today is Christendom, including the very visible, organized church, will continue to get bad and big. Very big and very bad. Now, you're going to say to me, aren't you going to give me some illustrations about how that's happening today? I don't think I'm going to go down that road. 
because I think that most everybody here can make, make their own illustration. You just open your eyes and you can see things and how this applies today. It's not too difficult. But what I would like to do is to close this message by making some application to our personal lives. I'd like to talk to you about five things that I think are important from this. First, beware of equating size with success. Beware of equating size with success. All too often, size is more logically and clearly equated with compromise, corruption, and human pride. And you know that, and I know that. Not a divine work. And if you need something to think about, think about Constantine and what happened to the church after Constantine. This is true not only in the Christian world, in the church, and in ministry. It's true in the home, in assessing our children. I remember when my boy was a little boy, and he, was, he always didn't grow real fast, and he kept wanting to grow, and he'd come in and want to get on there, and we'd pull the thing down and want to measure himself, and you know, just wasn't getting up there quick enough. I said, son, don't measure yourself, your worth, by this. You measure your worth by your character. Even if you're five foot tall, and that's all the taller you ever get, you can still have a character that makes you seven foot tall in the eyes of your peers. The principle of not equating size with excess is also true in business. We tend to look at our balance sheet. Do we have more sales? Do we have more profits? But is that really an indication of real success? Are we really contributing something to our society, to our life, to our family? What are we accomplishing? It's true in the area of our personal, assessing our own personal worth. How many of us tend to look at our portfolio and say, this is what I'm worth? Huh, that's not what I'm worth. Hope not. We need to look differently. Size does not equate to success. And we need to be careful. Because in order to be successful and to be in terms of size, so often you compromise, you, you have to be corrupt, and you're filled with human pride. They go together. Not all the time. And there's plenty of exceptions. But usually that's the way it works, isn't it? And particularly when it comes to spiritual things. Beware of equating size with success when it comes to our spiritual life. Our spiritual life. Which is so, so important. How does God measure us? By what we've done, what we've accomplished, what we've achieved? God's looking at the person we're becoming. In Him, in Christ, by the work of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. That's how we need to assess ourselves. I want to just, on this particular point, leave you with a passage of Scripture. The Apostle Paul was constantly being battled in the church at Corinth. My bad boy. I hit it. My voice will go up, though. Is it back on? Okay, good. The Apostle Paul was constantly fighting with the church. You know, over, they thought he was a wimp. They thought he was, you know, and Paulus was such a polished speaker. And, and why don't you get out of here? And this is what Paul said to them in the final chapters of 2 Corinthians. He says, Now I, Paul, myself am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to obedience of Christ. Do you look at things according to outward appearance? For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves... And comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Why is that? 
He goes on down the page. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord, for he who commends himself is approved, but, whom, but he who commends himself is not approved, but whom the Lord commends. That's the one that ends up being approved. Second thing I'd like just to leave with you today is beware of tolerating even a small amount of evil in our life. Beware of tolerating a small amount of evil in our life, knowing that it can a little leaven can leaven the whole lump. Friends, if a little leaven can leaven a whole kingdom, what can it do to our life? All of us struggle with sin, and we're never going to completely be victorious. But what God is looking for is that when we sin, are we humble? Do we acknowledge that sin before Him? Do we say, oh Lord, I have sinned, forgive me, and mean it? Remember 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The third thing I'd like to leave with you. Beware of trusting your intuition. Beware of trusting your intuition. How easy to believe things will get better. We all want to believe that. Until the Word of God, coupled with His wisdom, says otherwise. How easy to believe what a friend tells you about another person until we hear their side of the matter. How easy to jump to conclusions until we see things in perspective. Failure and shame awaits those who are trusting their intuition. A good night's rest awaits those who think soberly, who weigh heavily the words of God, who seek counsel from men and women of God, and who pray. Proverbs 18:17 says, The first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. Works that way in studying the Bible, too. How often have I gone to this book and I've sat down and said, I know what that means. And then I begin to actually think about it and study it and find out I was totally wrong. Be careful to show thyself a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It's true of Bible study. And true in her own judgments, it's true in my own case. One of the big problems I've had in my life, and I noticed I used to say when I was a young man, I was a really good judge of people. I can spot them right away, tell you what they're like, everything about them. Now I'm at this point in my life, ready to die. (laughs) And I'm telling you, I don't feel that way anymore. More and more and more. I get to know people and I find out the impression that I had was exactly opposite of what that person was about. All I needed to do was to give it time. Beware of trusting your intuition. Fourth, consider that not everyone who says Jesus is Lord will enter Messiah's kingdom. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Don't miss the point of this, as so many people do. He's not talking about doing more works in the name of of Jesus. He's talking about doing the work which they missed. And the work is the work... The will of God is to believe first in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, to be born again, to have God's life put within them, and then they're going to be in a position to truly understand the will of God, the mind of God, the Word of Christ. Don't leave here today, friends, and miss out on that. It's not just enough to say, I'm loyal to Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, and disregard whatever you believe or whatever you think. Not all who call on me and say, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But those who do the will of my Father. And what's the will of the Father? Is that they believe on my Son, whom I have sent. That's the will of the Father. Fifth, remember, the battle belongs to the Lord. 
Jesus did not paint a very encouraging picture of the mystery form of the kingdom of heaven. Christendom will and is becoming very big and very corrupt. And as one secular author who analyzed the church just a decade ago said, it's eroding from the inside out. Evangelical Christianity is eroding from the inside out because it has forsaken its doctrinal foundation. And that from a secular author, James Hunter. So how does God expect us to fight such an evil monstrosity that just wants to sweep us up off our feet and haul us along? And because we see the trappings of success, we're supposed to say, oh, I'm all for it. We need to be John Husses, John Wycliffe's, Martin Luther's, John Calvin's, Anabaptists, Huguenots. We need to stand up and be counted for what's true, what's right. We live in a decadent time. But we can stand up and we can hold up the Word of God. But it's a battle we will not win in our own strength. The battle belongs to the Lord. The weapon he has chose to use is the word of God. Interesting, Jesus comes with a sword. The word of God. In Second Chronicles, we read, Now all Judah with their little ones and their wives and their children stood before the Lord. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jael, the son of Mathaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all of you of Judah, all you inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid or dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. We need to take that to heart today. Our Father, encourage us in the unique way that each one of us needs to be encouraged at this time.